I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Tom Lucy Plus One. Um, we're going to get straight into it this week. Our guest is Danny Wallace. Um, Danny is a hugely successful author and screenwriter and uh, he very kindly agreed to uh, sit down with me uh, and have a chat. We actually recorded this on his hotel room balcony in London Um just a couple of days ago, so please excuse some of the background noise. Um, and also, my microphone didn't pick up the very beginning of the conversation, so it kind of starts in the middle of a chat um, that we were having about Danny working with Jim Kerry. so just to explain that. Um, but anyway, I'll see you at the end. This is the brilliant Danny Wallace. So, yeah, so Jim Carrey, it all happened through other people. Yeah, so, and then, you know, um, uh, he, I, I think, heard about it, they sent it to him <clears throat> and wanted to do it. And then that was that. 
Um, but one of the best things about that was watching him on set. You know when you're sort of a kid, you watch these Jim Carrey movies and you watch the film and then you see the bit at the end where he's mucking about and yeah. it's making the crew laugh. Yeah. Something hit me one day, I'm going to see that. I'm going to see him do that. And I did, and it was some of the, the greatest thing. You know, he was just, he had no fear. He, yeah. at one point, he just really did something no one was expecting and just flung himself around and did a massive Jim Carrey pratfall. And I was like, that's amazing. You know, if that doesn't make the film, it'll at least be in the sort of the end credits, you know. Yeah. And, but then you forget that he's getting on now. And next time I saw him, he walked around the corner and he just had a, like two or three ice packs on his ribs because he'd like <laughs> cracked one. And he just said, look, every film I do, I like to do something that even I don't know I'm about to do. Um, and, you know, he, for him it was that. sort of method acting, Jim Carrey? Because I watched that documentary. Oh, like, Jim and Andy. The, yeah. the Netflix thing, the Andy Carlson thing. It was great. Like, it was, like, insane. It was insane, uh, wasn't it? And um, I saw a little bit of that in him, but I also saw quite a, of a calm him. Um, there was one nice moment where there was a writer's strike on at the time, so the only things happening on that lot was the film, Yes Man, and like an episode of ER. So you either saw people who were in Yes Man, or you saw people in like fake casts and stuff yeah. like that. And I felt sorry for all these tourists who who'd obviously booked their holiday there from like Tallahassee or something six months in advance, had got their Warner Brothers studio tour pass, and yeah. nothing, nothing's happening. So it's just a man going, there's another brown building, just like all the other brown buildings I've just shown you. <laughs> and I was talking to Jim about that, and I still find it uncomfortable saying Jim. You know what <laughs> no, I mean? Right, it's like Jim so Carey. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <clears throat> um, I hate that on chat shows when you see people going, yeah, Bob, Bob De Niro. It's yeah, Robert De Niro. Bobby De Niro. Jeez. Anyway, so <laughs> I'm there next to Jim Carey. Jay <laughs> And uh, I mentioned that, and he goes, yeah, yeah. And then he just thinks something, and he goes, I'll be back in a minute. And he just ran out to one of those little tourist open-air tourist buses and just leapt on it and just started shaking it wildly like King Kong oh and God. screaming. And at first, obviously, everyone's thinking, we're all going to die. <laughs> There's a madman. And yeah. suddenly they start to recognise, oh, my God, that's yeah. him. And yeah. they start taking pictures, and he's grabbing people's phones and calling people. And he did it for, like, five minutes, but it felt like a long time. Yeah. And then he ran away and came back to me. And it was like, that was such a nice thing to do. Because yeah, yeah. those people, now their holiday's been saved. They've got anecdotes for the rest of their life. Yeah. And, um, and he just did a good thing that he did not need to do. That's really cool. So I thought that was great. I think, I, I think, was it in that Jim and Andy thing where he talked about maybe the same thing with the tours around the studios and he chased one of them with an axe? <laughs> yeah. He was, they were, like, the, the truck was going off and he ran after it with like a pickaxe. Yeah. Not as Jim Carrey, like in costume or someone. Yeah. Just to scare the people on the door. It's just amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he is, uh, I just saw him at one point, we were filming something for like the DVD extras and uh, he made the director sit down in the chair and then he was going to pretend to cut the guy's hair. Peyton Reed's yeah. hair. Um, but I think he just turned the clippers on and just started doing it anyway. Yeah. Which is really not what Peyton wanted at that time. <laughs> no. But you've got to let him do what he's going to do. I remember watching like uh, his stand-up when I, before I started stand-up. Uh-huh. And I just thought it was like the funniest thing. He was, G- yeah. he was such a good stand-up. He was. And again, you see in that sort of Jim and Andy documentary, don't you? Like um, just him uh, really thinking, what do they want? Yeah. What do they want me to be? What do they want me yeah. to say? Like putting so much effort there's so much um, these days it's like well here's my point of view and here's what I'm saying but he was much more about what do you want from me yeah. what can I give you yeah. that sort of uh, weird sort of neediness in a, in a good way um, I see a lot, weirdly 
my son reminds me so much of Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Um, and he was only born... Well, I've got to talk to my wife about this, because well, he was only born about nine or ten months after we'd been out there, so I've got to talk about uh, to, to my wife about <laughs> what, what happened there. <laughs> yeah, that could be a problem. Yeah. He's a bit well-known for that Jim Carrey, isn't he? Is he? Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, well. So that, was, so that year was 2009, 2008? That came out, yeah, 2000... Uh, Christmas 2009 I think and, that, and then after that did you just did you get swamped with Hollywood offers and... well it left a lot of doors open wide open um, you know and still once you've once you've had something made uh, out there or even if you've sold a script it's a lot easier to get meetings because yeah. people they 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 see a track record and they think oh someone else has paid him for this yeah. so let's 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 do that I mean you know, I've, I've talked about this before, but one of the first meetings I had after Yes Man was I went to my agent on the way back to the airport, and he said, "So when, when's when's the next book?" And it was a while away, so I said, "It's a while away." And he was like, "Sounds like it's a while away." I was like, "Yep." And he said, "Have you written, you know, like an article because we can sell articles, you know, they yeah. can lead to things." And I wrote this column for a magazine, and uh, I guess then I'd been doing it for couple of years yeah. and I, I was starting to think maybe I'll put them together in a book and I'd never said the title of the book out loud to anyone but I thought I'm going to call it Awkward Situations for Men and I said that to him and his eyes lit up he liked the title yeah. and ten minutes later the room was full of people in suits all saying we're very excited about this project and there wasn't a project <laughs> there wasn't even a book there was nothing so then I had to come home and say can I do a book called Awkward Situations for Men because yeah, I think yeah. I can make it into a thing we did that, which meant they could buy the rights, which meant they had a property, which meant there was a project. Okay. And then after that, every single meeting went as well as it could go. It was like a dream. It was like yeah. it was um, it was almost like a joke. It was like it was just odd to the point where suddenly Warner Brothers were going, "We want to make a sitcom out of it," and the head of Warner Brothers was going, "I'm going to come with you to the meetings." Went to ABC. We got the top person at ABC, who then went, "Let's go to the really top person at ABC," and suddenly there was a sitcom being made. Um, called awkward situation. Yeah, all based on one meeting where I just said a title. <laughs> your, your idea, yeah. There was no. I remember even <laughs> before the first meeting, they went. Um, my agent rang up and went, "Of course you've done a show bible, yeah?" And I went, "What?" And they said, "You've done a show bible." I went, "I have not done that. No, the meeting's tomorrow morning." And they were like, "Oh, you better do one." I was like, "Well, how do I do it?" And yeah. they said, "Well, you've got to do this and that." And I said, "Send me one." So they sent me one, and what I basically did was, I copied the fonts. <laughs> <laughs> And made something that looked a lot like a show bible, yeah, yeah. but did it in a in, in my own way. So here are the characters. This is the situation. Here's an example of something that might happen, and then just got into the room and started telling stories. Yeah. Um, and that is what they were sort of into the stories because they wanted like a point of view. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then yeah, we made a pilot for a sitcom that I ended up being in. I that didn't I didn't. Know any of this. Yeah, and I didn't expect to be in it. I didn't. What, for Warner Brothers. Yeah, for ABC That's and Warner Brothers. Yeah, and. It, it was I mean the whole thing was ridiculous that it, that it happened at all but it yeah. was like it was one of those things it got down to the final three in the end it didn't get through and I was sad about it for a couple of days because it had been a lot of work um, yeah. but then I was like do you know what I've done that I've yeah. done a thing and that's always sort of my philosophy is you know uh, uh, what were the chances of me being able to do that yeah. and we gave it a shot and there was troubles and there was like you know difficult setbacks and but we did the best sort of we could under the circumstances but at least I did it um, and so that's always uh, maybe that's a self-protection thing as well well I was gonna I mean it sounds a bit like for me to say this it sounds a bit corny and a bit but 
Sometimes the best friends you make are the ones you make along the way. <laughs> From after the Yes Man, you call it a project. Now I like sure. projects. I like projects. Yeah. After the Yes Man project, did you ge- did you genuinely your your outlook change? Yeah. You were a lot more positive about things. Yeah, I think so. And um, I would see opportunities um, where perhaps I might have ignored or thrown them away. Yeah. Almost like watching a foreign film where someone's talking and the subtitles pop up. It was almost like that with sort of like yes moments. Yeah. Of going, well, I could do that, actually. I could go and see this absolutely awful sounding prog rock band five miles away in three bus changes. Because yeah. it might end up being amazing. There might be a story at the end of it. You know, because you can always yeah. turn something bad into something good. If, sort of, um, but you must, but you must have that as well. Like with, yeah. with, with stand up, like something bad happens to you, or something awful, um, something annoying. Yeah. But that's good. That's better than something good happening. Yeah. Way. No one wants to hear your story about a great holiday you had. I know. It's sort of. I was. I um. The other people that I've spoken to on this about who are writers have all said that you just have to just do things. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if they good or bad or fun or not fun just do things yeah. because you just need as much like ins- inspiration and experience as you can get yeah and I'm finding that difficult these days like because when we moved out of London we moved to LA for a year and there was lots of sort of material there um, lots of things I could talk about um, but because I was over there I couldn't really talk about it to anyone because um, a whole new group of people all that kind of stuff and now I've moved <laughs> and I've moved out of London and I have to force myself to go out, do things, yeah. see things. Yeah. And it can be tiny things. It can be just, I'm not going to make a coffee at home. I'm going to walk into town and I'm going to get a coffee. Because yeah. something might happen. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something tiny. Yeah. But it'll give me an idea. But I kind of used to, I think I kind of used to think that the way to write stuff was to, I mean, obviously this is like on a much different level to you, but way to write stuff is to close yourself off in a room for 12 hours. How do you write? Is that how you write? Well, that, I sort of used to go, right, I'm going to make myself sit down for six hours today and write, and I'm not going to do anything else. But now, I sort of found that didn't really work. Yeah. I would very rarely get anything worth. I would just sit there beating myself up that I wasn't thinking of anything. Yeah, but you're actually, creating a roadblock, um, yeah. Yeah, but actually now, I sort of just just do things and just don't think about it and and sort of make notes while you're doing stuff and that's it's what I do much easier yeah it, you're actually like having experiences and you've got yeah and you're in the moment and if you're thinking about like what it's going to turn into yeah. like with me if it's I don't know a column or a story I'm going to tell on the radio or whatever in that moment where it's happening you start to new ideas start to fire off about it because you're looking at it kind of as a storyteller, in, in a sort of weird way, um, yeah. you're you're thinking, "How will I get this across?" And then, and then you talk to your friends in the pub, and you say, "This weird thing just happened to me," and you yeah. start to sort of hone the anecdote, yeah, yeah, and find the new avenues, yeah. Um, and also, particularly for um, stand-up, I mean, because it it has, I, well, I think it sort of has to sound conversational anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you've sat and written it like a play, yeah, it will sound like that when you do it. Of on course, stage. of course, it will. Yeah, much better to sort of. And there's, but there's a place for that sometimes. There's a place yeah. for like flowery language or yeah. um, an unusual word. Yeah. Um, but that you know to use to cut against all the the conversational stuff, I guess. Yeah. So you is that been quite a recent realization for you, or was that the last sort of since Yes Man? Really, all the books um, 
while I was writing them, because writing a book is quite is a solitary thing, um, and uh, do I guess have to be quite disciplined writing? You do, you do. Um, I always feel like I've got Catholic guilt without being Catholic about sort of like um, letting people down or uh, being late for a deadline or being late or not doing my work. I feel yeah. I feel if I'm not doing something, if I'm not writing something, if I'm not coming up with an idea for something, yeah. I'm wasting time. Yeah. Ross Noble, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with him and we would travel around um, different countries. And if he had a three-night run where he wasn't on stage, I mean, his leg would start to bounce. He would start to feel yeah. antsy because he yeah. needed to get it out. He needed to, he needed to be working. He needs to have that. And I've always loved that about Ross. And it's something I sort of understand about him. He's got this need yeah. to get it out. Um, and I've got a similar thing, but with with ideas and working and, and, and all that. And I imagine you do as well. Well, I, yeah, I, but I kind of um, feel a bit, like you said, guilty about not working. Because mm-hmm. I, I love doing this so much and I feel so lucky to be doing it. Yeah. That if I'm, I feel, if, I sort of feel like the least I can do is work really hard at it because it's such a it's so much fun to do it and it does feel like it could all just go away. But do you feel like do you do you think it's probably changed in the last ten years for the like the life of a stand up? Because in the sort of the nineties and the two thousands, I think that the idea of of, of, of the stand ups were and certainly from the, the people I know now and knew then, there was that that idea of oh you play FIFA all day and then you go out and do a gig and that was sort of almost celebrated and maybe that was sort of lad culture or whatever and now probably with the rise of things like Apollo and since started people wearing uh, since since people started wearing suits again um, and treating it like a profession and probably the fact that material is just being eaten up at a much faster rate I think you're right I think it's a lot more of a career now isn't it yeah people come into it with a lot more and you're young, so you must, you, you know... You, yeah, well, I came into it around that time as well. So when I, when I sort of started comedy, it was a massive industry. And yeah. There was a lot of money in it. And, uh, yeah, and it was like becoming a musician or becoming an actor. You knew that if you, were, if you made it big, you would make a lot of money. So yeah. I guess that changes. I guess if you started in, like, the early 90s or noughties, when it wasn't a big industry, maybe people were a lot less... Uh, Ambitious because there wasn't you couldn't you didn't see anyone who was at that level. Yeah. Now you can see it. You can see how big it can become. Yeah, and there's more respect probably from uh, in the old days. It would have been like oh you know lots of jokes about my parents would be disappointed in me being yeah. a comedian. But now it's like it's a source of pride because it means it, it kind of goes hand in hand as well with 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 yeah it's being smart as well because yeah. you're taking things um, that happen to you or your thoughts about the world and you are moulding them into something that people will immediately relate to yeah. and I don't mean in sort of an observational way I just mean in, in a sort of emotional way or intellectual way yeah. so it's I think there's more respect now I don't know I mean you you were am I right in saying that you were involved with the Mighty Bush like yeah. right at the beginning of that yeah so that would have been what, early noughties yeah or, that uh, was uh, I first saw them in a pub uh, the Hen and Chickens um, in Islington yeah in like the 90s 12 people in the audience yeah and I always remember a few years later being at like Brixton Academy or something with the same two lads yeah um but suddenly there were thousands of people dressed up as them yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
and uh, I'd never felt as bad as like leaving the sort of the, the little party afterwards and going out of a side exit at I think Brixton Academy, and everyone getting just hearing screams and anticipation and gasps as the door opened, and just the sound of deflation as I walked out, <laughs> yeah. and I wasn't Noel or Julian, um, and just they thinking were like, like rock stars, weren't they? Completely. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, when we were making the the radio show. Noel would arrive on, you know, he'd step off the bus, right? Yeah. On Kingsland Road in Shoreditch. But he already looked like a rock star. Yeah. And that wasn't, you know, Vince Noir. That was just Noel Fielding yeah. in tinsel, you know, <laughs> a, a whole you, sort of a soldier's uniform made out of tinsel or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and, and obviously Julian was a bit more serious. But Julian remains just one of the, the funniest people. Um, just the way he moves yeah. I can sit opposite him in a pub and I can just watch the way he moves I can watch what his eyes do they yeah. sort of dart around nervously yeah. or I can watch what he does with his hands yeah. and it's it's all funny yeah <laughs> <laughs> so what so did you work but he once told me though his mum Julian's mum when he would go back to for Christmas or whatever his mum very proud of the bush or whatever and she had like a little uh, a little car I don't know what a full fiesta or something and she put, she put like a Mighty Boosh sticker on the back that she got from a gig or something like and then he would have to go out to like the Tesco Metro or something on Christmas <laughs> Eve to get stuff and people would recognise it and he's stepping out of a tiny car <laughs> with, the, with the Mighty Boosh sticker <laughs> just on there which would have been hell for, yeah, for Julian that's amazing <laughs> I once um, uh, did this uh, writing job on uh, do you remember when Stars in Their Eyes came back and Harry Hill yeah. was presenting it yeah. I did a job on that when I was I, I honestly must have been about 17 or 18 but I remember he used to turn up he had a a, a light blue Rolls Royce really? which had on the back of it a sticker that said no tools left in this vehicle <laughs> and I used to oh, think that man. was so funny and you know he bought it for that game yeah he, and he loved it and I, I remember the first time I saw it and I he spent £123,000 <laughs> plus the cost of the sticker for that joke. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> so did you work with the Bush all the way through? When it came to... So we got this show away under the radar. Radio 4, uh, I was a, a trainee comedy producer and I wanted to take the Bush to Radio 4 and yeah. um, you know had met them at, you know at the Hen and Chickens and then in Edinburgh and our paths had kept cr- crossing <laughs> wanted to take it to Radio 4 and Radio 4 said and I quote the mighty Bush is one million miles away from what we want on Radio 4 <laughs> and I was obviously very disheartened by this because I was sure. like the mighty Bush is what you need on Radio 4 yeah. because your average listener is 72 years old yeah. and uh, in <laughs> 8 years they're going to be 80 yeah. and then you might not have an average listener anymore <laughs> you've got to start bringing some people in and um, my boss John Pigeon was a great he was a dude and he had been brought in to the BBC to great sort of controversy everyone was like well hang on who is this guy and he had a varied career he, he had a nice life just living in the country just doing what he wanted he was rock and roll he wrote the first ever review of The Police. He was a music journalist who went on tour with, like, The Faces. And now suddenly he was in charge of, like, loads of bureaucracy and yeah. infighting at the BBC. Yeah. And he wanted no part of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. He also liked to be a bit of a rebel and to buck the trend. And so when I was like, apparently it's a million miles away from Radio 4, he was like, let's see what we can do. And he found some scam that we could make it for local radio and somehow they would pay for it. And they would pay next to nothing for it. But it was, it was just about fine. Most of the budget went on flying Rich Fulcher over from America, which had never been done. <laughs> and he just like slept on Julian's couch. Yeah. Um, and we tried to record it in a studio, and it didn't work because it was putting them under too much pressure. So we set up a makeshift studio in a disused disco in Shoreditch that smelt of fox, smelt of fox urine. And there was, um, to get to the studio, as I called it, which was just a cave at the back that... Noel decked out in velvet and stuffed this is animals. Exactly how I hoped it. Yeah, made. there was the the soundproof booth was made out of velvet that he'd got from a secondhand shop and like stuffed animals from yeah. a taxidermist. And when that collapsed, we had to record it in a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and in the room that you walked through to get to, in inverted commas, the studio, were like fourteen fax machines mm. being run by a man who was sending out spam faxes all over the world just saying hey you know we do this or that and, and just bothering people and I remember there was a model who would go around on roller skates with a dog called Red and I always remember that people would talk to me and go the great thing about the radio show is attention to detail because even in the background of some of the takes because it's in a zoo you'll sometimes hear a dog and it's like a really like where it's not supposed to be and I'm like no that was a dog that was a dog that we weren't allowed to kill yeah um, and, and yeah, and we just made it. And then it went out on BBC London. Now, the mighty Bush, very much an acquired taste, uh, the right time for it to go out is 11 o'clock at night on Radio 4, if it's going to go out there. Yeah. Maybe 6.30 when they get better known, but 11 o'clock's about right. Yeah. It went out at midday on BBC London on a Saturday yeah. between, like, the sport. Sure. So you had, like, men in white vans and cabbies... Um, listening to what they wanted to listen to old school scar combined with football updates and then they'd have to go let's just take a break for half an hour as we visit the knockabout whimsical world of the mighty boosh (laughs) it was reviled people were going what the hell is this but the plan worked because then Radio 4 heard it and realised hang on Julian and Noel can write a narrative and they can create characters and they can write these songs and their world that we don't understand actually makes sense and so they went, we'll have the repeats. And so they put it out once and once only on Radio 4. They bought the repeats. And it meant that the Mighty Boosh suddenly found an audience. Steve Coogan heard it and went, I love it. Yeah. Made them an offer. They very kindly came to me and said, would you want to be involved? Would you want to produce? And I was like, if, if it's Baby Cow, I would go with Baby Cow. Because if it's me doing it, I've never done it. Yeah. And I don't think I could do it. Um, go with them man and yeah. and they did and I would bump into them in Soho and they would excitedly take me into like the edit and I'd be like wow this is going to be this is yeah. going to be great yeah. but I couldn't have done it I could do the radio you know and I did it you know so you at the time you were a radio producer yeah but I my job was to give them as much freedom as I could yeah. and to hide them from the BBC and to keep them you know fine and to make sure they had everything they needed and then to be there you know, and you know, be a be as cool a producer as I could. You know. Yeah, but but did you have ambitions to go into TV or? Not really. Um, I ended up doing it, um, 
I didn't like it as much because my whole thing is I like to either make things on my own or with as small a team as possible where we are left alone and we can do the thing we want to do. And when I was producing, that was always what I tried to do with whoever I was doing it. Let's make it small scale. Let's make it you and me. I'll try and fob everyone off and and hide a bit, um, but let's just do the thing that we want to do as much as possible. Because once you get into TV, you've got to rely on about 40 different people all to care as much as you do about the thing you're doing. And they don't. You know, (laughs) they don't. And why would they? I um, had like experience of that. The, the, the first sort of, uh, I had this um, this idea for a show that someone came up with after Edinburgh last year. And it was there was about ten people working on it, and it was all going really well. And then uh, it was going to get made by Comedy Central, and then it didn't at the last minute. They just said they didn't want it. And I uh, was like, really, not, you know, I thought it was going to happen. It was yeah. the first time it's ever happened to me, so I was, you know, like annoyed about yeah, it. Yeah, of course. But, but I was sort of amazed by how little <laughs> the other ten people cared about it. They were just like, great, well, we'll do, we'll do something else then. I know. And they instantly just moved on to something else. And I was like, oh, I thought we were... I know. Deep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I always feel like... like in, in America, <laughs> it's like it's like that. Brutal. But much worse. Yeah. Um, you'll, you'll spend ages talking with these people. You'll write this script. You'll solve all these problems. You'll have sold it. You'll have pitched it. Yeah. You'll have got everyone excited. Everyone's always excited about everything. And so you <laughs> yeah. think, oh, wow, they're really excited about this. Yeah. And then I remember one project, I just got a phone call from this guy that I've been working with for ages, um, an exec, and he went, yeah, they're, they're going to leave it there. They're, they're, they're not going to pick it up. And I was like, oh, man, all right. And I wanted to talk about it. And he's like, so yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. I was like, oh, but I, and then I was like, he'll phone, he'll phone back. Never phoned back. Never phoned it was back. just, that was it. It was on to the next thing. And I get it. You know, you've got to out there. You've got to sort of is do it, all is that. Is it but, worse? Is it noticeably worse in America? Yeah. Is it? Oh, my God. I, there was a big. Pro- I was telling you. I was telling you before we were recording that when I moved to LA, just before I moved, like the stars aligning, I got this email, and it just had my name and the name of a, a film franchise that I uh, happened to adore, and there was a question mark after it, as if to say, oh, "Does he want to be involved in this in some way?" So obviously, Sex in the city. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, do I want to do an animated version? <laughs> for nine-year-olds um, and so this thing came in and I was like wow if this works out this could be good and so I, I worked I pitched for it I found myself on a Skype call with my favourite childhood director and I made best cases I could and I, suddenly I had the gig and they said when can you move out I said I'm moving out anyway so suddenly I realised my plans might change because I'm there for a year anyway but it might be longer and before I know it we've sold it to uh a major, well, to Netflix, and uh, uh, I've got to hire a second in command. I've got to hire a writing staff. I'm uh, meeting all these people. I'm going to be in charge of. There's hundreds yeah. of them underneath me. Now I'm thinking this could be a massive mistake. And as soon as I arrived there, this thing I could tell was starting to crumble, but no one was telling me. Yeah. And then I watched similar projects around it all crumble and all go away. Yeah. And then one day it was dead, <laughs> and no one <laughs> called me. No one called me for yeah. a day, yeah. two days, three days, yeah. a week, a week. No one's called me. You're in charge of it. And these people, no one's called to even commiserate. Yeah. There's not a fruit basket. <laughs> Some sort of card. But now it's a challenge. Yeah. Because now it's become a game of chicken. Because yeah. it's like, I'm not phoning you. You should phone me. Yeah. You, you know, as far as you know, I mean, what you, 
I, I was astounded by the sort of the the lack of compassion, empathy, yeah. or care. Yeah. But then I started to understand it. I was like, there is no compassion because they don't care because they're onto the next thing. Yeah. And I was a I was a cog in the machine. Yeah. Um, but because it was the biggest thing I was doing, I obviously thought I was a bigger part of it. But then you realise, no, you're not. You never are. Yeah. Um, and everyone's got other stuff to do. Well, I think I think I, I don't. You know, I've had such little experience of it, but it seems like. Um, people—it's just so hot. People are so scared of losing their job. And yeah. Their—they've got a career in this industry, and it's so hard to just have a career. So people are so worried about losing it that they'll just do anything, you know, to to, to keep hold of their bit of power or their. Bit yeah, of and maybe they don't want to be the one to deliver bad news or to commiserate too much because then they become the person you associate with it yeah, and that in a sense is a failure yeah. that, you know on, on a perceived failure on, on, on their part they think you're going to think that yeah. uh, or maybe uh, maybe they're just unfeeling <laughs> bastards <laughs> do, you think, uh, what, do you think that writing is, is writing is uh, the, the industry is it sort of cut is that or? no it's nice I mean you know grown up stuff uh, the, the books the, for, for grown ups there's a bit more um, there's more paranoia and yeah. um, snobbery but there's probably also uh, a bit more a bit more compassion the kids book world is lovely yeah like I do a series of kids books and my god <laughs> everyone's having fun all the time <laughs> yeah uh, everyone's nice yeah. they're always eating cakes you know what I mean um, everyone's wearing dungaree yeah. So, and and radio I find very nice. I mean, if I could only do two things, um, it would be writing and radio. Yeah. Probably for the reasons that we've said: the small teams, the fact you can do it on your own, the fact yeah. that you're in charge of what you say. Yeah. Um, th- those are the things. But what about you? Is it stand up all the way, or what's the thing you want to do? I don't know. I mean, I've only really done stand up now, up to now, and I always want to do stand up. Do you have a plan? No. No. It's good not to have a plan I don't sometimes. Think it's a, yeah, I think it's a good idea. No, you set yourself up for. It's so unpredictable as well. Yeah. How could you possibly have a plan? Yeah, just do the thing. My whole thing has always been go where the fun is. Yeah. But always, always try and do the fun well. Yeah. Work to make the fun good. Yeah. Because then you will inevitably um, be asked to have fun somewhere else. So whether that's radio or TV or books or film or scripts or whatever, be adaptable, um, but let the idea excite you and, and work, work, basically. I think someone might have said that. I think someone said to me something like, there aren't, there aren't that many good things like in this industry. So as long as you can make good things, mm-hmm. you'll always be fine. Yeah. Because there just aren't that many good things, genuinely yeah. good things. I think so. So, I think there's probably a truth to that. I think so, and and doing it despite setbacks, you yeah. know, doing it despite um, um, uh, people who often don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah. There's there's a lot of them about. Yeah, but that's sort of another thing that I've sort of uh, realised from meeting people um, who work in TV and you sort of realise that no one really knows what they're doing. Yeah. Even people with very important jobs. Oh, totally. You can sort of see in their eyes that they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah, they don't know. Um, you, you can you can very often see just moments of hesitation. Yeah. 
which are then papered over and rather than show you that weakness they make a decision and whether it falls in your favour or not it doesn't matter to them because they've just had to make a decision and they've done it and they're happy that they've got to that point (laughs) Um, you know very often I think that I think it's different in America I think that executives in America while there are still many who you would suspect don't know what they're on about there are so many more who do because they read they read scripts they learn the sort of the nuances of it they think about characters they involve themselves in it much more they can see what's on the page whereas I think over here unless you know unless on a page you've got the word fanny and you've made it slightly bigger font and maybe underlined it and maybe done some arrows <laughs> they might not spot the joke but it has to you know that's why in Britain I think there's been a, a tendency recently to have a lot more kind of um, rudeness in, in comedy or um, yeah. not toilet humour but sort of sexual humour and all that kind of stuff which is great and has its place but for a while it was just a lot of cynicism and a glut of that mm. and it became quite a depressing thing to watch because it was just that there was no sort of joy there was no kind of um Nothing that really reflected how we speak to each other yeah. on an everyday basis. Yeah. It was all just, yeah, the word fanny in, in, <laughs> in a bigger but font. Then, but then you get things that are, that are you know, how we speak to each other, and they're massive, you know, like the heap show. Or, yeah, and they sneak or through. The office, or, and, they, and they become huge. And you know what? Everybody claims credit for it. I've met five or six different people yeah. who all signed off on developed and commissioned catastrophe and they can't all have done that (laughs) there's no way but very often in in British sort of broadcasting I've I've sort of found that if you produce a gardening programme on BBC One you might get asked to take care of mornings on BBC One and if you can keep your nose clean and keep homes under the hammer on the air you probably get asked to take care of daytime and then if you can do a couple of years of daytime might well get sort of prime time and before you know it you are head of commissioning yeah. of comedy or entertainment yeah. or anything because because you've stayed somewhere mm. um, and that's not <laughs> the same as going out to see comedy no. or understanding what a joke is no. or or doing anything you see them when they're taken out by their teams or whatever to like a night of stand up yeah and, and sometimes they you can tell because they laugh at everything because they've never been to one before <laughs> so everything is funny I was saying that yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah everything is I hilarious on that thing um, that stars in their eyes thing what I remember watching because one of my jobs was sort of assisting Harry Hill and I remember watching him argue with a producer about this joke that he thought was funny and she didn't yeah. and I remember thinking I mean, he's <laughs> who are you going to trust he's won the Perrier yeah. he's yeah. A, 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 a hugely famous comedian yeah why would you not listen to him yeah. about what's funny yeah let him yeah. let him try it <laughs> yeah. and if it turns out you're not right you know it turns yeah. out that it, it doesn't work with the audience well, just edit it out doesn't matter yeah but let Harry Hill yeah try it be Harry Hill <laughs> it's, it is extraordinary I remember doing a hosting a quiz show at the BBC and it was like a shiny floor BBC One quiz and before you record it you 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 do a little run through and it's really just a technical run through it's really just the cameras know what's going on we yeah. can test the slides but we need some contestants so you know we know that tonight we're getting a I don't know a bobslayer someone from EastEnders yeah. 
and uh, and the weatherman. Yeah. But they're not going to turn up for that. Of course not. You don't want them there. So you get students in or whatever just to stand there. And their job, you know, I'll go, oh, so, um, you know... Um, Percy Thrower. <laughs> I'm trying to find a. I don't know. Percy Thrower. What were you like? Uh, what were you like in the old days? Uh, and then, but then the student has to do a bit of sort of bantering. But the thing is, yeah. they, they they're not the person. They're not earning the money. Yeah. They're not used to it. So yeah. they'll just say something. Someone will try and be too funny, which just kills it. Someone uh, will be cocky because yeah. their mate is watching and that kills it. Yeah. And someone will just not give you anything, which yeah. just kills it. Yeah. So obviously, for an outside pair of eyes, this looks like it's going to be an awful show. <laughs> but the audience isn't in. There's not the electricity in the air. Yeah. You're not doing it. I'm not doing it properly. Yeah. And you've got students there not doing it properly either. And I remember being taken to one side by an exec and just going, are you happy? I was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be all right. And she's going, but it, it, um, it, it just seemed a bit low energy. And I was going, what do you mean? And she went, just the whole thing just seemed quite... Like, will the guests yeah. will the guests be funnier? <laughs> and I, I was like, the guests? Well, we'll have guests. Yeah, I was like, they weren't, they weren't the guests. Yeah. And she's like, oh, right. I was going, no, no, no. No, they were just some students uh, <laughs> that we got in. You know, no, 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 the guests, no, it's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. Now I find myself reassuring the person yeah. who's sort of in charge of the show that Adam Woodyard, yeah, Adam yeah. Woodyard from EastEnders is going to be fine. And, and yeah. also, I don't know if you've seen EastEnders, but, you know, that was a small black man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That wasn't him. That's the weird thing about panel shows now is you get, you get sort of comics at my sort of level and you get people from Love Island. Yeah, or, and Bonnie Langford. Yeah, and people from, like, the history. Yeah. It's mad. I also noticed about those American shows and I guess it's a money it must be a money thing but when you look at um, some massive American comedy show that it'll have like 15 writers yeah I suppose to hear when it'll be like two or three yeah and also those writers will be very good yeah. and pretty well remunerated yeah and they will be desperate to make it really good because they want to make their name because they want to get to the next thing yeah um so you tend to get like a really sort of a good quality um, of writer there but also that's just because it's a numbers game there's yeah. 270 million Americans yeah. um, and there's not that many of us no. um, and there's fewer still sort of trying to break into showbiz because yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> it's different here but yeah no they, they will have yeah they'll have many more writers and there's much more of a career strategy and a career plan and yeah. if you can if you can get eight weeks on a sitcom out there then you know it, it will really help you yeah. career-wise and also uh, just financially. Whereas over here, you know, they're still vastly underpaying people um, and understaffing. You know, they wonder why we can't do a daily show. Um, pay for it. Yeah. Got the people. That's been shown to you by the fact that John Oliver, <laughs> a man who is great but was largely ignored, yeah. you know, um, I, I guess, again, because... I don't know. Maybe, maybe he he wears. Uh, I don't know why he would have been ignored. Do you think that because they are trying to make stuff? Um, you know, they are trying. There are American shows. I mean, they tried to make Saturday Night Live over like here. How many times? Yeah, there was. Yeah, so there was like Saturday Live in the nineties with like Lee Hurst yeah. and people like that. And they they try it and you know, there's there's always a lot of excuses. But yeah. I think you could. Do, I do think you could do it. Yeah. We've got um, the talent, 
Um, maybe we couldn't do it every night. I kind of, I, I don't, I kind of feel like it gets hyped up too much. Mm. Do you remember a couple of months ago they did the nightly show? I do, and I thought that was such a wasted opportunity. Because that could, I, that, but it was just hyped up too, and it was on every trailer, and there was posters everywhere, and the British public instantly go, we don't like it. Yeah, and also, yeah, exactly, exactly that. But also, it was a stupid show, yeah. right? And what people want right now is smart shows with yeah. a point of view and an opinion. And that's what they should have done. They should have stuck to one host yeah. and made it smart and not done stupid games, mm. not get you know Kim Cattrall on and ask her for the millionth time what it's like to have lived in Liverpool a million years ago. <laughs> um, have a point of view. Yeah. And don't just talk about British things either. Talk about the world, like from our perspective. And do it well and write it down and don't be afraid of doing a five minute monologue you know well written perceptive funny angry yeah it was just too silly too stupid too inconsequential you know Fallon and Corden who all make sort of quite silly shows really yeah I think maybe that was the the idea well then stick to one host and then when you lose your nerve after five weeks keep going because they've got to bed in yeah it's like it's like anything it's like um breakfast shows it's like you have to become part of a routine you've got to it takes a while um, to for people to get used to you yeah um, but the thing is they would have just lost their nerve I mean part of that is we've got to have a different host every week um, yeah. okay David Williams is very big but how let's follow that, up with a chef how is that sustainable though a new host every week yeah what if it was commissioned for a year yeah a new host every week and the features kept changing and it was like it was just a different show every time yeah. and, and none of it was bedding in so I yeah, that's a uh, British because I sort of feel like anything that's overhyped here tends to flop in terms of TV. And yeah, well, I also think that if if you're gonna, yeah, absolutely, the overhyping gives people a reason to hate you already. Yeah, but also paying attention to Twitter, paying attention to social media, yeah. have the balls to not do that. Yeah, I've done shows, you know, years ago where I remembered the first thing an exec said to me was, "Oh, it went down well on Digital Spy." And I remember just thinking, I don't care. <laughs> Was it good? Yeah. You know, um, it's, we're putting too much faith in the opinions of drunk people who happen to be watching something at 11 at night. Yeah. And the papers end up reporting on, now there's a news story if 11 people don't like a programme. Yeah. Who cares? Make a good like, programme. Yeah. But I, I, the, pe- the sort of people who go on Twitter and say, I'm watching whatever and it's shit, I don't like. I don't know anyone who would do that. No. None of my friends would tweet about something. So who are these people? I don't know. Doing it? Unless must, you can make a good joke about they it. They must be like, you know, permanently angry. Yeah. They don't, don't do it. With, but they don't do it with crisps. They don't do <laughs> yeah, it with you know chips. Yeah. Shit. They they it, they save that for <laughs> other people. You know, it's a, it's a it's a sort of a willingness to try and inflict something. I'll inflict yeah. my opinion on the world. Yeah. But I also think if you're going to make a show that you want to be as American as possible employ some Americans yeah. employ some experts yeah. use British talent um, but just let them get it off the ground yeah. what is it that they do how do they work how should the room work yeah. everyone talks about the writers room and then they try and start one in Britain but it's by, with people who have never been in an American room before yeah. I, I spent a couple of days at The Onion um, yeah. watching what they did <laughs> Um, and it was brilliant. It was like a, a TV writer's room. And some of the best writers of comedy that I've ever sort of sat around would each bring in like 10 brilliant knockout jokes. 
and they were just jokes they were just funny headlines there was no story to it it was just does it make you laugh or not and 200 jokes I think went on this whiteboard and over the two days they whittled it down to something insane like four any of those jokes those jokes they're not allowed to bring those jokes back you can't repitch so all those jokes are dead and they were some of the best jokes that I had seen you know they're just funny ideas and I had so much respect for what they were willing to throw away but it does feel like sort of writers rooms over here and there are some that aren't that way I've got friends who, who, who do things that way and they do a brilliant job it just feels like too many of them just go that's all right, yeah, we'll do that then. And there's three ideas on the board. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, quality control. Do you have, um, uh, just to finish, do you have things that you haven't achieved that you still would really like to... Yeah, loads. I mean, you know, for, for every thing you do that, that, that flies or that does well, there's like ten things that haven't. Yeah. Um... And so, you know, there's, there's, there's always things that you want to go back to. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to try my hand at, 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 at a full sitcom run, not just, you know, a pilot or a script, but being able to flesh things out, yeah. create a world. I've got a, a film I'd like to write, um, a couple of them. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, always, there's always stuff to do, but there's always other stuff that gets in the way as well that you have to get out of the way. Yeah. Um, just to pay your bills and just to because you've said you will yeah. uh, I'd like nothing more than to have just a clear month where I go that's what I'm doing this month, that and nothing else yeah. nothing else I would love that um, so we'll see surely with like, you know, the books coming out you can go right, well, you know, you can now block off a few months now that I've done this book you pay more attention to it, certainly yeah. but you still have other things you need to do or just to scratch an itch as well that's why I do a radio show every week. You know, I do that, and it's only a couple of hours, um, but I do that to scratch an itch and flex a muscle. Yeah. Um, just telling stories or, or, or coming up with ideas in the moment. That's what I love about radio. You'll get a text one minute before you go on air, yeah. and you just decide to throw everything you've done away yeah. and go with that. Yeah. And before you know it, you're asking someone to get a certain bit of music and you're writing a sketch and you're saying to one guy, you do this or, you know, whatever, and then you create a little moment, you get yeah. a caller on, and it's, um, it's exciting. Yeah. And you just do it for a couple of hours and then, and then I feel better for the whole week. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then I just do my other stuff. So, yeah, so I, I find it all exciting. What about you? What's the thing that you want to do? Well, I don't... It's, it's stand-up at the moment, that's yeah. what it is, at least for the next, you know, few years. I just I'd like I'd, I'd like to get really good at stand up and then do other stuff. Mm. But I I, I feel like um, it would be bad to try and do too many things at once. Mm. And I I just like to get really good at one thing. Hone your craft. And then hopefully do other stuff. Yeah. But the other stuff won't happen unless I'm really good at stand up. Yeah. Does that make sense? Of course it does. Yeah, you you know you've got your passion and you want to kind of yeah. do it and um, and and you know and and write it and hone it and you know get new ideas I, I found it very disappointing recently when I realised that so many stand-ups when they get super busy you know do end up employing loads of writers and stuff yeah. and people who aren't stand-ups but do, do stand-up but have shows written for them by other people I always think that's cheating 
Yeah. I think that, I think that, what you say has to come from you. Yeah. And just as a fan of stand-up and as an audience member and all the rest of it and 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 sort of the experience I've had around it for so many years, for me the the purity of it is um, is what really matters. I want to know that you had that thought. Yeah. And when you tell a story, even if it's sort of made up or embellished, I want to know that it came from you. Yeah. Even even if it's not true, I don't care. Yeah. You you're the mind telling it to me. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose because I, I think the argument because I know I think people would be surprised at how many like really well-known stand-ups do that. Yeah. But I think the the argument they would say is that they're just too busy or they don't have enough, they don't have enough time to write that amount of. Then I'd say don't do it. But yeah. But I say don't do it. What are you What are you busy with? Do that yeah. then. Yeah. So why are you doing this? Yeah. <laughs> don't do that until you can do it. Yeah. It's not a money thing. No, because yeah. you, you're shortchanging people. Yeah. Um, it's you're acting. Yeah. Um, I, I that's what I don't that's what I don't like. I think if look if you're too busy. Just do the other thing. Yeah, it's quite weird. Um, with, with stand-up, you sort of you know, Edinburgh Festival, you you'll go and have a good show, and then you TV people will come and they'll ask you if you have any ideas for scripted sitcoms. Yeah. that seems to be the only thing they really want is yeah. scripted. Yeah, and it always strikes me as quite weird because it's like you, you know, you've just watched me do an hour of yeah. stand-up, yeah, which was, was good. By your, you've said you liked it. And now you're saying, can you do something completely different? <laughs> yeah. Just yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you know, Loved your stand-up. Have you got any ballets you want to write? Yeah. Have you thought about starting an estate agent? <laughs> it always strikes me as quite odd. Yeah, it is. And I, and I sort of, you know, you sort of you don't want to let them down. So you want to say something. You yeah. Go. Oh yeah, I've got loads of ideas. Yeah. But actually, the reason that the show was good is because you've just been doing that for the last yeah. four years, whatever. Exactly. It's always strikes me as a bit odd. So have you got any good ideas for scripting? <laughs> uh, it is something I would like to do in the future, but you know, I'm not really in any rush. No. Yeah. Don't rush it. Ladies and gentlemen, there we go, Danny Wallace. Um, amazing. That was really cool. I really enjoyed chatting to Danny. So uh, a big thank you, Danny, if you're listening. Thank you for having me. Um, and uh, a big thank you always to Joel Grove, who produces the show, and Will Shahada for the editing, and uh, my manager, Rick Hughes, for all your help. Um, and thank you to you for listening. And, uh, yeah, it's great. We've got some amazing guests in the next few weeks. Uh, which I'd like to to announce, but I can't, um, but they're good. Uh, So keep listening and subscribe to the show if you've not already. Give it five stars on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. And uh, yeah, we will see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.